Good day, Warrior Nation. And listen, we are super excited here at the Wartime Leadership Podcast to be able to team with Liquid IV to bring to you a very special promo. My family, you know we live here in the South. And let me tell you, we know what hot looks like. Day in and day out, it is hot, 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 hot. It doesn't matter the season. It doesn't matter the time of year. It's going to be hot. And Liquid IV has become a staple in my family's every single day living. Uh, Recently, we received an order, and inside there was strawberry lemonade, which is a new flavor that Liquid IV just recently put out. And let me tell you, it easily became my favorite. Now, there are 12 delicious flavors to be able to choose from, all of which contain five essential vitamins, B3, B5, B6, B12, and vitamin C. Get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use the code WARTIME at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code WARTIME at liquidiv.com. You're listening to the Wartime Leadership Podcast. This week's guest, Matthew Wise, and now your host, Nathan Coy. All right, Jeff. So this seems like a very interesting conversation for today. Uh, your mom, dad, whatever, with the with the Army, you Air Force, me Air Force, and I think this is actually the first time that we've had a Marine on on the uh, on the show. So actually, it's pretty good. Matthew Weiss, how are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. Coming to you live from overseas. Uh, so crazy different time difference, but excited to be here. Yeah, listen, you, you're going to experience a lot of great deployments, and you're going to experience some that are kind of, eh, and I think that this one is probably right towards the top. Definitely can't complain. Definitely can't complain. Won't say exactly where I am, but not a bad place. Yeah. Well, trust me, there's plenty of time for that. Hey, before we get going too, too much, because I know there is a little bit of lag because of where you are, there is a little bit of a lag in our uh, communications. So before we get going, let's start with five easy questions. What is something about you that would surprise me? I consider myself to be from the greatest state in America, uh, a title that most people dispute. But obviously, if you're from the great state of New Jersey, it's just a fact that we are the best and uh, everyone should move to New Jersey. You know, I think I've seen uh, on many of the the presidential campaigns and whatnot, whenever they're doing the Republican convention or the Democratic convention, doesn't care which side it is. They always stay the people of the great state of New Jersey. It's inevitable. Indeed, indeed. All right. <laughs> All right. Hey, uh, oh, I am... You know what? This might actually be the first time I'm not going to ask one of the questions that came up on my random generator just because. <laughs> what is the one thing in your life that you are not doing that you wish you were doing? Ah, it's a great question. 
Um, I like to surf. Being stationed in California, you can surf a lot. Uh, my current location, due to what lives in the water and the near and the close, there's absolutely zero ability to surf. Uh, there's highly likelihood that if you were to enter the water, you die. So unfortunately, zero surfing. Wish I could do it when I go back home. I'll definitely surf. Uh, you know what? Knowing where you are currently, uh, I think that is a very wise choice. Hey, when you were a kid, what did you hope to do when you grew up? <laughs> so every other kid and all my other friends wanted to be a professional basketball player, a football player. I, uh, I always dreamt of running for politics one day. I don't know if that dream still survived. We can get into that via the way Gen Z looks at politics later. Uh, but I was the little nerd who would wear a suit to the local school elections, ran for president in my middle school and high school. Uh, I was the president of my middle school and high school. Uh, so that was my little little youthful dream. See, that, that was going to be the next question. Did you win? So good job. Congratulations on that. Obviously, had to had, had to lead the way from the beginning. Well, <laughs> <laughs> Marines, lead the way. Hey, what's your favorite thing about your job? Uh, the, the Marines that I work with. Uh, truly, this, this, and this will lead into stuff we'll talk about later, but the people that I work with, um, the Marines I get to see grow and work under me, work with me, are uh, truly, truly amazing. It's been the greatest gift uh, to actually be with them. I, I would do this for free for that. So that's definitely the best part. Uh, also, I'm terrible with fashions. So the fact that I get to wear the same thing every day is definitely a benefit. And it matches. <laughs> yeah, definitely good having a uniform. I mean, come on. Absolutely. What is your favorite place in the entire world? So obviously, with my first answer being New Jersey, we'll go now more specific, my little home in northern New Jersey. I truly believe there's no place like home. I've been away from it for many years now, uh, but no place like home. And to always have a little root somewhere is, uh, is a valuable thing. It's always nice to have home to go home to, right? Especially being in the military and experiencing deployments and battle rhythm and everything that kind of comes with that. Having a place to call home, because my, you know, my wife and I experienced this for a lot of years where we would be traveling you know, every four years to a different location, different location. This is actually the longest we've been in one location here in South Carolina for five years. Uh, but to never truly call it home was always really hard absolutely 100 percent. home is home is where the heart is home is home absolutely well hey matthew that was our five easy questions everything from here on gets easier easier we'll go with easier hey why don't you walk us through your background speaking of new jersey speaking of home uh, talk to us about your background, where you came from, went to college, what's what's happened along the road up to right now. Absolutely. So I like to say I came from a non-traditional uh, military background, had, had no immediate military influence in my life um, and was sort of 
always interested in joining, but kept delaying it for a long period of time. So I went to uh, University of Pennsylvania, studied business, um, and was thinking about joining right at college, sort of pushed that back to get an MBA from there, uh, pushed that back after got a job offer at a, a defense technology company, which was a pretty interesting, um, a really amazing private sector experience. And then right about at that company, I had I actually worked directly for a former Marine uh, infantry officer and had a bunch of conversations and kept pushing it back, kept pushing it back. And then eventually we sort of sat down he looked at me and said, if you're going to do this in your life, like it has to be now, you know, based on your age, your body, like this has to happen now, if this is ever going to happen. So I finally pulled the trigger after three recruiters. So basically in Marine Corps, you have an officer recruiter. I had one in college. I, I went through his whole rotation. I had another one that was sort of walking me through it this time. And he cycled out. So by the third time, a third actual recruiter was the one that finally got me. Uh, I only met him once and I signed the paper. I was like, I've been talking about this for six years. So he signed and, and uh, ended up joining the Marine Corps. Um, super young, second lieutenant, right? Uh, this is my uh, So wait, why, why, was it, why was it three? Three, just because I kept delaying the time. So there were, the, the, first guy, the first recruiter was, you know, two or three years of time that was in college. Then once I kept delaying and kept working, the second recruiter came and I, I outlasted his entire tour. And then finally, it was the third one just by time who kept filling the same recruiting office. They probably had my name in like some some curse jar or something of like, who is this guy? Uh, and so so he finally came and I finally was ready to put the papers down and I signed with him and he, and he was the third one. So, yeah. So you sign, you sign with a recruiter. You're you're out of college. You have your your master's in business already. Yep. You, you finally sign up for the Marine Corps. Has it been everything you thought it was? So I'll I'll tell a funny uh funny OCS officer candidate school boot camp level story, where uh, I just had to do a basic thing. Right here I am. I had this semi fancy job. It's nice degree, whatever, and I'm forced to open a lock, right? A typical combination lock in a certain period of time. And, you know, it's a typical shark attack moment being yelled at by, by three sergeant instructors at the same time. And I cannot get the lock open. And I'm sitting here thinking seriously, seriously, exactly, you know, knife hands contemplating life. of How did I get to this point where, you know, I, I used to be doing whatever and now I literally can't get the lock open and I'm being called, you know, the, 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 the dumbest person around and they were laughing too i think because they had this realization that here's this uh this candidate who who was decently successful in the private world or whatever and now we got him and here he is he can't open a freaking lock um and i couldn't i couldn't get it open uh, it took like an extra minute or something so uh that, that that was a good you know quantification of life kind of moment a kind of reflection of wow I really did uh, go all in here and decide to do this. So that was a good moment of, oh my gosh, this is the Marine Corps now. Kiss that old life goodbye. So OCS for the Marine Corps is just like with the Air Force where you have the sergeant, NCO, wearing the hat, getting into your stuff, getting into your gruff. 
What did it feel like to have somebody that's going to be lower ranking than you in that short period of time? Like the, the time you graduate, you will outrank every single one of those instructors. It's an interesting question that I think is more pertinent for, for them than us, actually, because from our perspective, uh, again, I was extremely humbled to be there. Right? We were broken down to level zero. I didn't even think about rank. There were times I didn't think I would graduate. Right. So from our perspective, it was I was extremely grateful for them for teaching us, mentoring us and putting us through that very hard experience. I think for them, there was a little bit of uh hey, this is our last chance to really turn them into better officers because they are going to lead one day and they are going to be responsible for, for junior Marines and, and, and junior uh, enlisted. So for them, it was maybe more interesting than us. Here's this stupid kid off the street who you know, doesn't really know anything, has no experience, and he outranks me. That, 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 there was positive tension there, but definitely you know, they, they guarded the gate well. For me, I was extremely humbled. I, I was just still learning the ranks, you know? I, learning, you know, who, who to say uh, staff sergeant and who to say gunnery sergeant too. So I was just happy that I could sort of by the end of the time identify which was which and I knew what a lieutenant bar versus a captain bar was. Uh, but again, I came in with very little knowledge. So very sort of low to baseline understanding. Well, and and it's good to be able to to be because you look at it from the viewpoint of mentorship and what mentorship looks like is completely different nowadays than what it used to be. Um, but it's, I know that as a senior NCO, my role is to mentor junior officers and to be able to take them under my wing. Now, a lot of the time we did do a lot of that yelling and getting in their face and getting, you know, getting those things uh, put into the brain, but it's more of the idea and the concept of You've got to lead us, and to in order to be able to lead us, you need to respect us. Do you think that that's true? I do believe that uh, as a leader, you definitely have to garner a level of respect. You have to uh, present yourself in a way that people not necessarily will look up to you, but will look at you as competent and able in your job, right? Especially in, in the line of work that we have in the military where there is life and death situations and there's some serious responsibility and stakes on the line. If you are not able to demonstrate, you know, the baseline competency in your job and then sort of right there with the baseline, a decent level of respect or belief that you actually can lead successfully from those that you're leading, then, then if you can't do those two things. You're finished. Right. So I think, achieving those two as a baseline level of leadership is definitely important uh is essential if you don't have that you can't go any farther so that that is definitely important um and i think that's something that the military all the branches do foster well in their young leaders some obviously more than others but it's something compared to the private sector compared to other places we, we put such an emphasis on this interaction that we call leadership that uh we do uh value it to a level or producing leaders basically yeah and and i think you bring up a very very valuable point there it's i need you to be competent right competence breeds confidence and confidence breeds competence so i i was i i was mean as long as i needed to be as a drill instructor like i was i did it for the time that i needed to do it 
But eventually there got to a point where I needed you to be competent. And in order to do that, I needed to raise your confidence level in order to get you there. And I think that that's even true in the joint force that we're operating in a lot nowadays. You still have to have, as a Marine officer, you have to show your competence to me that I'm going to trust that you're going to be able to do that job. It doesn't matter what level you're on. If, if that's my responsibility, right? Uh, rank versus responsibility. Absolutely. 100% agree with that. Agree with the joint concept that, you know, the future of warfare is going to be completely joint. So we have to have the ability and confidence that if this person's wearing this rank or th this person's in this role, regardless of the uniform, regardless of the training that they came from, they're able uh, to take command right here. I'm actually on a certain exercise right now where there's every single branch is represented and interacting a lot with all the branches and the ability to know that that person who's a higher rank or who's ready to take the lead right there and regardless of the branch is able to take the lead is a very reassuring important thing that we need to continue to foster throughout all the branches in the military well now you have a book now that's called uh we don't want you uncle sam and it goes into some pretty deep areas i think i haven't obviously the book hasn't come out yet as of uh recording but just understanding what the concepts are from your perspective uh in dealing with gen z uh how have you seen an adaptation of older minds you know the older senior and seals the older um officer leadership with the newer generation that's coming in Absolutely. So I wrote the book. Um, I'll, I'll back up for a second and just explain the why and, and then delve exactly into that. There is a massive recruiting crisis going on in the military right now with Generation Z. Generation Z, by the way, Pew Research defines it as uh, 1998 to 2012 born um, birth year. So we are most of the branches in the military um, are seriously suffering from lack of recruitment numbers. Uh, the Army missed their goal by 15,000 people last year. They're going to come in this year, as well as the Navy, and I believe the Air Force as well, are all going to miss their goals. Um, and, and it's pre presenting a really big issue. It's compounding into a massive issue. Because if this trend continues, we're going to start to have to reduce force structure. We're going to have to start to really sort of think about uh, where we're going. So I sat down and I, I listened to these news segments and they were on the news talking about this and everyone up there was this older, uh, very respected, you know, senior general or admiral who, who again, great respect, respect rank 100%. But I looked at it and I said, most of those people are 30, 20 years out from when the time that they were recruited, how, how can they possibly know what's going on with generation Z? Now, wouldn't it be better suited to have a on the ground member of generation Z like myself think about these issues? So I really sat down and, you know, went deep dive into this problem, broke it down into four chunks. And the question you asked, you know, what is Gen Z's? The first question that the DOD has to start asking to start to get right. Uh, and one of my beliefs here is, you know, the basics of Generation Z is that we are a different generation. Right? We're not like the millennials. There was uh, sort of a, a break or a change. Every generation has different character, but those born right around the turn of the century uh, are different. Maybe someone 
97 to 1998 isn't that much different, but someone born in 2004 is very different from someone born in 1996. Like there's been enough development in those eight years that you really can classify a difference. Um, so let's jump into that. So, so, so who is Gen Z? So one thing I wanted to spell, and this, this is chapter two, you know, the millennials are very much the, uh, the everyone gets a trophy generation, right? The nineties were good times. America's on a high. Uh, it's pre nine 11. Everything's good. And, you know, there's this myth that goes around that everyone gets a trophy, uh, all positive. And I actually disagree with that. I think that Gen Z is a very competitive generation, that we are one who grew up with the benefits yet stresses, and we can talk about the mental health stresses of social media, right? We had the phone attached to us from day one. We had Facebook, Instagram, all these social media uh, platforms attached to our life. And we are used to ranking each other, getting likes, getting more comments on a picture. We actually have been competing for, for attention, popularity from a very young age. Again, that comes with goods and bads, but we are very different from everyone gets a trophy generation that I think a lot of people wrongly associate with us. And I think that time has passed. Um, so that's one point of how Gen Z is different. Um, I can go into it, you know, a few of them uh, depending on when you want to take it. But but that's sort of just one example of how we have to look at this as a new generation. And from a recruiting perspective, we have to reframe our mindset of who are we actually talking to? Who is the Gen Z of America? Yeah, 100%. And I, I think it's... I, I think that I'm in a good position because I'm the commandant for one of our first level of professional military education. And I'm in a good position to be able to see a newer generation coming along. And I have gotten my team certified on something called the five voices and the five gears. And so what my instructors are able to do is to be able to connect with the, low, with the younger generation uh, to be able to do things like emotional intelligence and understanding what people are saying, even if they're not exactly putting themselves in there. But that's identifying a problem and fixing a problem and bringing those two together. Uh, so I've been in a good position to be able to see that. Where, how has your leadership developed and brought you to that realization? Like, like what was it that was kind of that trigger moment for you? It's a good question. So, again, so some of the older veterans will laugh at me when I talk about my training stories. And I know not to just continually talk about training stories, but we're, we're, I'm so young, so new in the Marine Corps um, that, and if you believe in the process, you believe in the, the initial entry-level training, then, and I do, you'll hear a lot of people say, like, the, the way that you led then uh, impacts the rest of your career, right? And that basis and that foundation that you have impacts the rest of your career. Um and so one of the hardest things I think about leading is actually leading your peers. Leading when you have rank or leading when you have authority in the business world or billet is actually in some ways uh, easy because if, if you show up and do you know, X, Y, Z and uh, are competent, you're given the level of authority and respect that comes with having that rank and having that quote unquote guide on. And sometimes leading from below is also again, not easy, but it's also easier, right? You can help manage your boss, help your superiors uh, succeed. But leading your peers is probably the hardest thing possible because you have no inherent respect with them. You have full equality with them. You have no rank. So throughout training, 
as we go through at the basic school in the Marine Corps, there's, you know, various, everyone gets tested on various evolutions, but you're leading your peers. You're all extremely fresh new second lieutenants. Um, even though some have, have a uh, uh, prior enlisted experience that's extremely valuable, but in terms of rank, you're all the same. And so during sort of our final field exercise, um, I'll never forget this moment. It was, it was, a, it was a key leadership moment. I was leading my platoon about 50 fellow second lieutenants. But again, because we're all second lieutenants, I didn't have the rank authority. I just had the, like the billet authority. And even though we listened to each other with the billet authority, uh, decisions were much more by consensus or decisions were much more evaluated and scrutinized because, well, you know, he's had the same training as me. I could go ahead and make a different decision. Uh, and I made, I was making, I don't have to go too in, in the details, but we were, essentially planning a, a, a raid on a city. And um, we didn't have uh, enough water. And I had to make the decision between do we do we wait and potentially risk the mission or do we do we actually go? We've been walking around for three days. It was extremely hot, Quantico heat. We had no water. And I was making a series of decisions that were clearly dividing the group in half and clearly, you know, bothering a certain group of people. Um, and I realized then the the key difficulty of leading your peers and how it, you know, you, you want to achieve consensus, but you're never going to potentially achieve consensus. And sometimes you just need to press on. And so that was a key leadership moment that gather all the data possible, discuss the options with your peers. But when you make that decision as the leader, you will press on and you will have to live and die by that decision. Um, and there was a lot of anger, but based on the decision I made, right, which was basically to press on and, <laughs> and not stop as long as I should have for water. Um, and I stood by that decision and obviously still stand by it uh, in terms of how I made it at the time. But there was there was a good pushback. So that was a key crystallizing leadership moment that, again, a really strong training environment was able to give me at a very young age in my career. You know, even at one and a half years in the Marine Corps, you're doing it right. <laughs> you know, you, you, you've got a really good, firm, strong head on your shoulders as far as what that looks like, because it's the same thing, no matter which rank or which branch that you go into, uh, a good leader, a good commander will actually bring in, we call them a first sergeant. So you bring in your first sergeant, who's your personnelist, who has the heartbeat of what's happening within the organization. And then you bring in your chief, your gunny, uh, your, your, top enlisted member in the organization they sit down together all three of them the triad and they go okay so what are the pros and cons of this situation and then they make the best the commander not they the commander makes the best choice going forward for the organization that they see but then they stand by it but not only them but that first sergeant that that enlisted leader the the senior enlisted leader they all come out of that room no matter if they agreed or not they are standing as one joint uniformed team coming out with that decision to go forward and say, this is the direction that we're going to go. So from that idea, you can look at it from perspective. You had your other peers that were there. Perspective plays a lot into that. And you're looking at it as my perspective is I'm in charge of this entire team, 50 other lieutenants running around Quantico uh, trying to figure out this mission but you were put into charge. Your perspective was different than theirs. Absolutely. 
Uh, and I'll make an interesting comment there. I think you brought up a great point about the unique um, enlisted officer reaction and relationship that we get to have in the Marine Corps and the Air Force and the Army and the Coast Guard and the Space Force, the military as, as a whole. And that's um, not the same in the civilian world. So the nice thing that I have in terms of perspective to use that is I worked in the civilian world and I went to this fancy business school and I studied all, you know, everything by theory. Exactly. I get the round of applause. Um, uh, and the point is, you know, in the business world and the private sector of the country, they're always trying to study leadership and learn about it. And they often look to the military for guidance because they know such great leaders um, come from the military. And one of the things lacking that you really don't get anywhere in the business world, I didn't find it in theory, didn't find it in practice, is that unique, almost mentorship of leadership reaction between senior enlisted advisor and junior officer, or senior enlisted and senior officer, um, or even senior enlisted and junior enlisted, but specifically the, the O to E interaction where you can have a young junior, it's called leader in training, who's really just a you know, lieutenant, can be a euphemism for a leader in training, with a really seasoned, experienced, enlisted advisor. And the two of them go on this ch uh, challenge and journey together where the senior enlisted advisor humbles themselves and recognizes that the junior officer is in charge, right? And that rank does make decision and rank is in charge. Yet they have the experience, the knowledge uh, to, to mentor that junior lieutenant or the junior officer throughout their experience together and to really grow them. And it's such a special and valuable relationship. You don't get anywhere in the business world. It's very unique to the military. And it's one of the things that makes us so strong when that relationship goes right. Obviously, you hear stories of both sides of that relationship not respecting it, which is just terrible because that's, that's the, the whole purpose that it exists. But when you see it go right, and I think it goes right more than it goes wrong, it's the best leadership factory, the best leadership relationship you can possibly ever have. And the business world simply has no equivalent. Um, and I'm extremely grateful that I've been able to experience the positives of that, that my peers, most of them have been able to experience the positives of that throughout all the branches where you get that really amazing senior enlisted experience to be able to grow that junior officer into hopefully a future great mid-level to senior level experienced officer yeah 100 percent. like i i i honestly didn't know going into this what it was going to be like uh to have this conversation but you're saying all the stuff that we need our leaders to be able to say and to be able to voice openly with individuals and to have that sharing of that conversation with them uh, but just to kind of take this in a little bit different of a direction, uh, to kind of go from that leadership side to what it looks like for resilience, uh, this podcast was built and birthed out of the idea of spiritual resilience and being able to understand it from different perspectives, from different people. So as a Marine, as an individual, how would you define spiritual resilience? It's a great question. So spiritual resilience is, in my very young, youthful opinion, 
the ability to have life punch you in the face, punch you in the gut, punch you in the heart at the same time, potentially knock you completely on your back. Yet you get back up, you don't tap out, you don't quit. And eventually you punch back. And that to me is the core definition of spiritual resilience, that things will happen in this life experience that we all call life and being on the earth <laughs> that are so brutal, so difficult, uh, what we could call a wicked problem. We, we face a lot of wicked problems as humans, meaning there's no simple one solution to them, right? Sometimes there's, you know, a problem has an easy solution, but wicked problems, spiritual problems, life problems are very wicked, meaning they come from a thousand different angles and there's no clear answer often. And they will knock you on your back. They will punch you in the face. They will punch you in the stomach. They will, will knock you down. But having the built up spiritual resilience, the heart, the mindset, to then get back up and to continue fighting, to get back up and to push back is my definition of spiritual resilience. Um, and mm. a key, key component to being successful in life. So how do you practice spiritual resilience? How do you, you know, we talk about exercising the, the mind, you know, for mental resilience. or we talk about exercising the body for physical resilience. How do you exercise spiritual resilience? Absolutely. So I think the best way to answer this, I am going to go back to business theory because it's something that I actually incorporated in my life. Uh, it's a good little lesson, maybe one of the best lessons I learned from uh, this long business school education. Uh, a Angela Duckworth is a very renowned writer. She's an um, extremely brilliant professor. She writes the book Grit. She wrote Grit. She puts West Point cadets in there. Um, and sort of measures their success and basically says that you know grit which is resilience but i'm going to define it specifically uh is is the key to success one of the things i think that's hard about building resilience and that's hard just in in the modern day world and this goes back into generation z is everything happens extremely fast and is extremely short-sighted or very myopic myopic is short-sighted word right so we like to think and do things very fast we like to you know, get the quick dopamine rush of clicking a Facebook button. We like to, you know, follow the latest trend, do the latest thing. And building true resilience and grit are, are actions and decisions over an extended period of time. And when life pushes us down, we're not necessarily always going to pop back up immediately. It's often over extended periods of time. So this longer term thinking and this longer term practice is extremely beneficial for one's development of resilience and, and truly development of their life. So to tie her theory back in the way myself personally is I will seek to do longer term things to push back that in, delay that instant gratification, push back against that to do things and practices that will help build that longer term resilience, that longer term leadership. And I think that that's a key thing. It's, it's actually using time as your sort of a leverage factor within the course of any day, your shoelace could be untied. You can miss the, you know, random things can happen, but the real struggles in life are going to have long-term effects and to beat them back, to have true spiritual resilience, you're going to have to have long-term view and growth. Right. And that's sort of the, the way that I practice it. I like to look for long-term projects to work on. This book was a very long-term many month year, basically project. 
Um, and any one day it was brutal writing, right? I would lock myself in the room for hours, but long term, as I did that daily habitually, it built an actual skill and I was able to come away with, with some, some, some long in writing. So that, that's my personal view of spiritual resilience and, uh, uh, how to actually practice it. Man, that's, that's absolutely beautiful. That is a very unique perspective to have on it. And that's exactly what we're trying to do. We're trying to empower and build up every generation by teaching them different ways that they can experience spiritual resilience. So that is a great way to look at it. I, I actually, I'm known to throw Angela Duckworth, uh, comments up on Instagram just simply because I love her. I love her perspective on so much. So I, I don't want to get too far off key, but I, I want to move back kind of towards the book and what it's about and how you came about writing it. So if you don't mind, tell us, you know, the story of how you came into the idea of uh, we don't want you, Uncle Sam, and how this kind of came to be. Absolutely. So when I was thinking about the topic and, and uh, seeing those news, both, you know, all types of news stations, both sides of the aisle run these recruiting segments and looking at how the people on these segments were, were these older, you know, more established senior defense individuals. I sat there and I said, it has to come from someone young. So I started having a ton of conversations. The process, I think, before you decide to do anything should be to gather data, right? So I gathered a lot of data from my peers. I said, hey, let, let's talk about this. You know, What do you think about the recruiting crisis? How could we improve this? I kept asking the question, you know, why did you join, but your best friend from high school, or your best friend from college didn't? I kept, that was like a key program question. And I got a lot of interesting answers. And so I started to develop um, basically 21, I mean, it's the 21 chapters of the book, but 21 reasons why uh, this issue is occurring and 21 possible solutions. Again, I'll be the first one to say this. These solutions are designed to be right down the middle uh, of the aisle. They're supposed to piss off both sides. Uh, people can love some of them. They hate some of them. This is really intended to be a conversation starter. Um, but in terms of structure, I said, okay, the first thing I have to do is I have to analyze who this new generation is. I have to look at how military working conditions are either in line with Generation Z or what does Generation Z expect out of regular workplace conditions and then military working conditions, because we have to understand that. I then looked at um, aspects of our larger American society that are impacting Gen Z recruitment, right? What's going on, larger societal trends. This is sort of the core of the book, these hot button issues that everyone's talking about, but how is that playing into recruitment itself? And then I looked at, um, ways that the military can actually give back to larger American society. Basically, where does the military as a whole strategically go from here in terms of connecting with what will become the future of American society? Because the thing about Gen Z is that we are the future, right? We are the, the sort of generation waiting to take the helm. Uh, in a decade, 20 years, will become you know the core military thinkers, the core consumer generation, the core of the American society. So that... Uh, matters, I guess, uh, it, it does, it matters in terms of looking at um, how to recruit us and how to retain us and how to have us be that core crux. So that's sort of how the book is broken down into those four uh, segments. Um, and I go again in depth in each chapter about sort of a problem and a solution. No, I, I like how you take it 
from a 21 point perspective, right? Like just because to us thinking about the 21 gun salute and a connection between 21 points of how we can be better for the 21 gun generation. That's brilliant thinking. I don't know if you were actually thinking about that when you wrote it, but it looks like it. I like that. I'm, I'm going to use that. No, I, I had uh, I had a certain amount, and the editor made me cut certain chapters and certain things, so I, I, I reduced it down, uh, and it, it got to a perfect number. But I'm going to use that from now on. Twenty one gun, twenty first century generation. I love it. <laughs> you should absolutely. And for every copy that he sells, I get no. Just kidding. Uh, <clears throat> just kidding. <laughs> uh, Matthew. It's it's been. It's been absolutely amazing to have you on today, and I and I thank you for taking the time uh, to sit down with us because I know where you are, it's super stupid early in the morning. So just taking that time to be here. But the website is UncleSam.org. UncleSamBook.org. Yep, www.UncleSamBook.org. Sorry, I forgot the book. I will make sure that in the show notes it is correct. UncleSamBook.org. And by the time that this comes out, people can go ahead and go to the website and order it. Are there any other avenues that they can go about ordering the book? No, that's it. Just just Amazon.com. I mean, that's that's the basic thing. The website just links to Amazon, right? So this this is a very small project. It's it's not intended for, you know, great. Uh, success in terms of book sales or anything, but it's a really important topic that I believe all of us in the military, regardless of a recruiting background or or anything, we all have a duty to the institution that we are a part of or that we were a part of uh, to to see its future survival. And I do think this is an existential survival, right? I said at the beginning, right? The, the Army 15,000 person shortfall last year, uh, Air Force, Navy, Army, they're all going to miss the recruiting goals this year projected by thousands of recruits. So all of us need to have these conversations in all facets of the military, what we can do better. And hopefully this book is a prompting to have those conversations, to discuss some of these things. And again, some of my solutions could be totally off and wrong. That's fine. But hopefully someone, as we have these conversations, will come up with the right solution um, and be able to succeed and, and bring that together. Well, I, I cannot agree more. I mean, I'm looking at the cover that you chose for it. It's basically just Uncle Sam looking right at you and pointing out the flaws of the generation. And, and I, I like that. I like the idea behind it uh, because I think until we become more emotionally intelligent about the generation we're, or even start to ask the questions, <laughs> until we start asking the questions, Absolutely. we're not going to understand the people sitting across from us. And once we lose that, we start losing a lot more than just numbers from entering into uh, the branches. So great, great job. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you. No, 100% just to, just to foot stomp that. Agree. We have to ask that first question. That's the first section is who is this generation? How are they different? What are they desiring? What are they wanting? Uh, we can't just keep doing business as usual because it's clearly not working on a recruiting front um, and understanding this new generation coming up from all of us, those of us in it, those of us a little bit older that have that experience need to need to use that emotional intelligence and do that. And that's step one. 
Fantastic. Well, thank you from the entire team here at the Wartime Leadership Podcast. I have to say a big thank you to our producer, G. Frazier, with 369sounddesign.com because you have the hardest job because you have to take out the blanks, the herbs, the herbs, the ink, and make me sound good somehow, some way, day in and day out. Thank you from the entire team here at the Wartime Leadership Podcast. Be blessed. Hey, Warriors, have you ever wanted to start your own podcast? Now it's easier than ever with Zencaster. Zencaster is the quickest and easiest no-fuss solution to your podcast needs. All you have to do is log in using your browser, and you're off to the races. You can start recording high-quality podcasts right away. Record studio-quality audio and video, video up to 4K with you and your guests. Zencaster is an all-in-one, one-stop shop. When we first got started, we had to use several platforms. Now with Zencaster, that's a thing of the past. Now, folks, here's the real deal. Go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use my code WARTIME and you'll get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. That's right, 30% off. I want you to have the same easy experience I do for all my podcasting and content needs. It's time to share your story.